Amen. That's one of my favorite songs, so we have to be sure to sing that one. Uh, I'm not coming up until we sing that one. Uh, but uh, it'd be good. Well, if you open up uh, your Bibles with me to Psalm uh, 16, that's where we're going to be uh, studying this morning. Uh, now, there is a, a very famous uh, inscription on the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it was written in 1883 by a woman named Emma Lazarus, and it's entitled uh, The New Colossus. Uh, and this is what the inscription says. It says, Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, mother of exiles, from her beacon hand, glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command. The air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame, keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Now that inscription, uh, which was originally at the, the base uh, of the Statue of Liberty, is now inside the museum uh, there uh, on the island where the statue is located. And, uh, and that inscription uh, is written and engraved in order that it would be preserved. Right? Those are words that uh, want to be, uh, that our nation wants to, to cherish, that our nation wants to, to live up to. And those, uh, that engraving communicates uh, ideas and values. And then that statue is a monument to those values and to those ideas. Well, today what we are going to, to study in Psalm 16 uh, is another type of uh, engraving. It's another type of inscription. If you notice that the very beginning of the psalm, uh, there's a little statement there. And sometimes as we're, we're reading through the psalms, we sometimes skip right past uh, the title, uh, which in Hebrew is usually the first verse. And then there's different verses uh, from our English translations after that. But we can't skip past that. And verse 16, or Psalm 16 begins, a miktam of David. Uh, and we're not 100% sure uh, of what that word means. It might be a musical term, but uh, in, in my study, I think that the best way to look at it uh, is that it is intended to be an inscription. Uh, that word is very close to the Hebrew word for inscription. Uh, and so what David, I think, is telling us is that these words are intended to be a memorial. They are intended to be uh, an engraving that we remind ourselves of what David has said and what he is about to say to us is of the utmost importance, right? How many things have you guys carved into stone just around your home? Very few, right? Maybe if you were doing cement outside recently, you may have put hands and, and maybe some initials, uh, but we don't regularly carve things into stone. And this is the idea that David is setting forth for us here. Now, that this is an inscription to be engraved and remembered for all of time. But, but what is it that David would deem so important for us to read and remember? What, what topic could be worthy of such an inscription, right? Well, in this psalm, David is going to write about uh, the blessings that flow out of a life devoted to God. 
And in this psalm, uh, both stated and implied, there is a rich theology of the worthiness of God. Now, that David is seeking to convince us that God is worthy, but much more than that, uh, that we should devote our lives to him. David is seeking to convince us of the worthiness of a life devoted wholly and absolutely to worshiping God. And that is what we need to be convinced of, because all too often and all too easily we are carried away by the conflicts, trials, and circumstances of life. There are times in life when we feel like we are lost at sea, or or we have maybe no direction, uh, maybe no wind behind our sails, maybe no rudder. Uh, We don't even have a map or where we should go. Uh, When we feel lost at sea in this way, tossed to and fro and up and down, we, we sense that great need within our hearts, right? And David is all too familiar with that. And if you notice, how does this psalm begin? It begins with a very short prayer, a very simple cry for help. David says, preserve me, O God. Right? And that's how it begins, and if we can continue reading, because after this, what David is going to do is he's going to preach to himself and to us uh, about who God is and the life that he has devoted to God and what his experience has been. So read along with me, beginning at the very beginning of Psalm 16. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore... My heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is what we're going to to see, is is David preaching to himself, preaching to us on what the life devoted to God consists of, first, what it overflows with, and what it leads to. And these are the, the three features that we're going to unfold this morning. And my prayer is that as we study Psalm 16, that we are going to be convinced not only of the worthiness of God, but of the worthiness of the life devoted to Him. But let's look at this first feature of a life devoted to God. It's found in verses 1 through 4, which we just read. But we can call this first feature of a life devoted to God. We could say what it consists of. 
And that is commitments of our heart. Commitments of our heart. So following his very brief prayer, David reminds himself of the commitments that he has made to God concerning how he's going to live. If you look at verses 1 and 2, it says, Or preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The first commitment that David reminds himself of is that he is committed to Yahweh's lordship. That that the Lord is his God, his master. Yahweh is the shelter that David runs to in times of trouble. He is the one that David looks to for comfort, peace, security, rest, and safety. Verse 2, we must read very carefully because, again, in, uh, in the, our English translations, Yahweh is usually just translated as Lord in all capital letters. But that, that first line of verse 2, I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai, you are my master. You are the one I receive my marching orders from. You are the one that I give my allegiance to. That is what David is communicating, and he's saying it to Yahweh himself, and he's saying it to us. Now, we have to think about this. It's really easy to state that type of a commitment. What's far more difficult is living it out consistently, right? Uh, One pastor, Charles Spurgeon, in preaching on this psalm, he says this, "...to avow this with the lip is little." But for the soul to say it, especially in times of trial, is a gracious evidence of spiritual health. To profess it before men is a small matter, but to declare it before Jehovah himself is of far more consequence. And that is what David is doing here. He is reminding himself and reiterating to God that he has committed himself to God. And then David makes an amazing assertion in the the second part of verse 2. He says, I have no good apart from you. Now that is an exact number, right? David is saying, my only good is found in the person of Yahweh. His relationship with God is what he gets all of his satisfaction from. That is his greatest good. His greatest good is not found in pursuing his own agenda, his own glory, his own happiness. His greatest good is found in a personal, intimate relationship with the God who has given him life and breath and everything. And so David is willing to boldly go on the record to the Lord and to everyone who's going to read this psalm during David's time and up to the present. David goes on the record and says, I am committed to Yahweh's lordship. But then flowing out of that first commitment is another commitment that we see in verse 3. A commitment to the saints' fellowship. Because as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And the assumption is that if you uh, delight in and experience a, a deep joy and satisfaction in your relationship with the one true God, you are also going to find delight and satisfaction in being with his people. Uh, David delights in being with the saints, or literally in the Hebrew, the holy ones. For all of those who are following God, David loves to spend time with them, uh, to rejoice and worship. Uh, All who call upon the name of Yahweh with a sincere heart and faith, David loves to be with them. Uh, But there's also, uh, out of this second commitment, 
One flows into the other. If you're devoted to Yahweh's lordship, you're going to be committed also to uh, the fellowship of the saints. And then there's also going to be uh, a third commitment, which we're going to see in verse 4, because if you are delighting in God and in his people, there's also naturally going to come a separation and an estrangement from those who are not pursuing and worshiping Yahweh in the same way that you are. If you're going wholeheartedly one direction... Who are you leaving behind? Everyone who's not going in that same direction. In verse 4, we see that David has a commitment to a pure worship. And he says this, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. There are some who do not worship Yahweh. In the Hebrew, the idea is they have bartered or they have traded the one true God for a false God, an idol. Uh, And uh, in that exchange, there is a multiplication of their sorrows. That's what David has has noticed, is that when you make that exchange, even uh, the exchange that the Apostle Paul speaks of in, in Romans 1, Right? That, that exchange uh, of claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, and creeping things. Uh, that's the very heart of idolatry. We don't just cease worshiping if we're not worshiping God. We, we turn our heart and our affections to someone or something else. Uh, and that, that phrase, the, the multiplication of sorrows, Uh, is the exact Hebrew phrase used back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, uh, to speak about the sorrow and the pain uh, that Eve would experience in childbirth. Right? And I know there are many women here recently who have experienced that pain, uh, as we've had many, uh, many young uh, children born. Uh, But but this is the idea, is that as as David has observed those who, who go after other gods, he says, wow, look at the results of what they choose. Uh, look at the, the sorrows that increase in their life. And uh, if we were to just reflect for a moment, I'm sure we have seen that uh, in the lives of others, right? That, that we sometimes see that even more clearly than we see it in ourselves. Uh, we can see the decisions that others have made uh, and how that has led to sorrow in their life. But we're, we are far less astute in connecting our own decisions and our own sinful actions, our own idolatries with what we are currently experiencing all of the the hardship that we face, we tend to externalize that uh, and blame our sorrows uh, on uh, other circumstances rather than internal decisions. But one thing to keep in mind here is that idolatry always and ever multiplies our sorrows. Idolatry is never going to relieve or remove our suffering. It only adds to it. Uh, And that's what David observes. And having observed this, David commits himself to a pure worship. He says, I'm not going to go and participate in their drink offerings of blood. Even more than that, David commits, I'm not even going to mention the names of the people who do such things. David takes a strong stance, a strong commitment regarding his worship. And these commitments might sound strange to us. We typically don't make these types of commitments nowadays. Uh, Back in the, the 1700s, there was a, uh, a, a young man named Jonathan Edwards uh, who, when he was a teenager, before he reached the age of 20, he had written 70 resolutions. And uh, he sought to live by these resolutions. Uh, and th- this is how the, the preface to them, he says, Being sensible that I am unable 
to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. He committed to, he says, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. And I'm going to read some of these resolutions and, and listen to the commitments of this young man. Again, he's younger than 20. He says, resolve, this is his first resolution, resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever. Now, that's the first of 70. Some of the other ones he wrote, revolution, or resolution number seven. says, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolution 16, resolve never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor, more or less upon no account except for some real good. Resolution 52 says, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just as so I think I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Resolution 12, resolved if I take delight in it as a gratification of pride or vanity or on any such account, immediately to throw it by. Think about those commitments. And, and there's many, many more. If, you have, if you've never read those, I would encourage you to just a short search on the Internet to, to go in and look at those resolutions and those commitments that this young man made and to the best of his ability kept for the duration of his life. And, and such commitments or resolutions, they do not save us. It's very important that we understand that. I'm not saying just try harder to save yourself. No man or woman has ever saved themselves by keeping the rules that they themselves create. Uh, and even then, Jonathan Edwards, I love his preface because he says, I'm not going to keep these perfectly. And whenever I see I fail, I'm going to confess it and forsake it and, and work towards uh, walking faithfully. But salvation comes only from God. Salvation is a result, not of our own efforts, but it's only by God's grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. But if we have been saved, if we have been regenerated, if we have been given a new heart by the Spirit of God, then such commitments as these that we see in the life of David and in the life of Jonathan Edwards, those make an impact upon our lives. Now, those should be at the forefront of our minds. And indeed, those are, if they are informed by Scripture, indeed helpful and profitable. Even what I read earlier in 1 Timothy 4. Uh, what did the Apostle Paul tell Timothy to do? To immerse yourself in these things. Practice these things. Earlier in that same chapter of 1 Timothy 4, he says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Uh, it takes strenuous effort. It's a workout. It takes some sweat. But then this question arises as we, as we see these commitments that David made. You can naturally ask, what commitments have I made to the Lord? Right? What have I been willing to forsake? What have I seen? Nope, this needs to be cut off. Right? What limbs have we lost in our walk with Christ? 
Where have we seen temptation in our lives and realized, oh, this needs to be amputated and cast far from me? Those are commitments of the heart. And if we look at our life and there are no commitments, if there is no such thing, that's significant. If following Christ has cost us nothing, then maybe we're not committed to His Lordship. Maybe we're not following Him as we should. Because there should be some commitments in our lives. You don't have to come up with 70, and you don't have to word them as Jonathan Edwards did. Uh, you won't be checked up on that as you, as you leave today. But there should be some commitments. And these basic commitments that David made are really, really good. He was committed to the Lordship of Yahweh. He was committed to the fellowship of God's people. And he was committed to a pure worship. He wasn't going to to mix in idolatry or other religious ideas into his worship of God. And we need to make similar commitments. David makes these commitments clear. And this is the, the first feature of a life that is devoted to God. And the second feature seen in verses 5 through 7. So if, that's, if commitments is what the, the life devoted to God consists of, what we see in verses 5 through 7 is what it overflows with. And that would be satisfaction in our hearts. Look with me at those verses. David writes, Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And in the night also my heart instructs me. So now David is describing the ways he has found a deep satisfaction in the Lord. He's made these commitments, which sometimes really seems hard and and difficult and, and wearisome. But then he describes what has been his experience. What is he now overflowing with as a result of these commitments? It's not boredom. It's deep satisfaction. And he's satisfied with God's provision. This is seen in the first part of verse 5. Is the Lord Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. David is satisfied with the inheritance that God has assigned to him because... The Lord himself is his inheritance. The Lord himself is his cup. That phrase, my cup, is a way of referring to a person's fate or destiny. That Yahweh is the possession and the destiny of David, and that is what David has found so deeply satisfying. David is content beyond measure because he has received the greatest gift, a sweet communion with God, and he has found his satisfaction in that. But then there's another source of satisfaction. David is also satisfied with God's providence. In the second part of verse 5 and, and verse 6, he says, you hold my lot. The idea is that God controls his destiny. That God is the one leading and guiding David each and every day, each and every way, where he should go and what should transpire. And David finds a deep satisfaction in the providential plan and purpose of God. And David continues to to speak using these Old Testament inheritance metaphors. Verse 6, he says, The lines uh, have fallen uh, for me in pleasant places. Or literally, the the boundary markers have fallen on good soil. Uh, That's the idea. As, As David looks and sees everything that God has given to him, 
he sees uh, the goodness of God, the goodness of God's plan. Uh, And he says, ultimately, his heritage uh, or his inheritance is a beautiful thing. He finds it to be beautiful, what God has blessed him with. Now, some of you may be thinking, but, but wait a second. Sure, David is satisfied with what God has given him. David's a king. Like, come on, who wouldn't be satisfied in that? But, but let us not forget, David had a very, very long road prior to becoming king. Uh, and a part of the lot that God gave to David was to be running for his life for many years from King Saul. Uh, and part of David's lot in life was to have a, a civil war in his kingdom within his own household. One of his sons rose up in rebellion against him, Absalom. In addition to that, there were many other wars and many other trials. And what David is communicating is each and every one of his days, every part of his destiny that the Lord has placed in his life, David finds a deep satisfaction in that. Whether he's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem or sleeping in a cave somewhere, he is satisfied in God. That's amazing. But where does this type of satisfaction come from? Where do we get, how do we get to that point? There's a third source of satisfaction in David's life. He's satisfied with the Lord's provision. He's satisfied with the Lord's providence. And then in verse 7, he's satisfied with God's prescriptions. David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And in the night also, my heart instructs me. He is deeply satisfied with the way the Lord has counseled and instructed him and guided him according to his word. And that second line in verse 7 is very interesting. The Hebrew is literally, indeed, in the nights, my kidneys discipline me. Like, that's interesting, David. Okay. Uh, what are you talking about? Well, the idea of the, the kidneys is his, his inner man. Now, and in connection with the first part of the verse, what we see is that when David lies down at night, he's not checking social media. He's meditating upon the Word of God. He's meditating upon how the Lord has instructed him. And this goes back to all the way Psalm 1, which we studied many summers ago. Psalm 1 was the introductory psalm to the whole Psalter. We have to understand that this song book, all Psalms 150, uh, they were later organized after they were written. They were arranged in a certain particular way, and Psalms 1 and 2 were placed at the very front because they are the front page news. They set the tone for everything else. And Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And David has found a deep and abiding satisfaction in doing exactly that. Now, in hearing from the Lord in his word and then meditating upon it, even at night. And as he lays in his bed at night, the words of the Lord discipline and instruct him and he gains understanding that is how david finds an overflowing satisfaction rooted in his relationship with god 
Now, back in the book of Numbers, uh, if you're familiar with that book, uh, the first generation of Israel uh, who rebelled against God, their, their judgment was to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, and the latter part of Numbers, the second generation of Israel is just getting ready to enter into the land that was promised to them. And in Numbers 18, God is giving instructions to the very first priest, a man named Aaron, the brother of Moses. Uh, and he is instructing Aaron concerning the, the future for the priests, who are the descendants of Aaron specifically, and then the whole tribe of Levi. Now, and this is what the Lord says to Aaron in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. He says, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. God says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Now imagine if you are Aaron, right? And you've been serving the Lord somewhat faithfully. There was that golden calf incident thing that was kind of a hiccup in your record. Uh, But he has been serving the Lord. He's kind of like, what's my inheritance going to be? And then you hear that the first part of what God says in that verse, you shall have no inheritance. What, what would enter into your mind at those words? Well, how, where am I going to live? How am I going to support myself? Like, I got a family to feed. God, what, what am I to do? The, the first part of that verse is tremendously discouraging, but the second half is absolutely amazing. Because God says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Now the priests were given no earthly inheritance so that they would have to rely upon who? Upon God. And what we see in this is sometimes it's a very good thing to be disinherited. Sometimes it's really good spiritually for us to lose something. Someone. Everything, everyone, because in those moments, what happens? We rely more heavily upon the Lord. We have to turn to him. David did not see his throne in Jerusalem, his monarchy. He didn't see that as his inheritance. He saw his relationship with God. He saw his inheritance as being the Lord himself. And the more we lose in this life, the more we tend to cling to God. We realize that He is our portion. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26 say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever were to look at your own life, when were the times that you were the closest with God? Is it when everything was going wonderfully, smoothly, and amazing? Or was it when the, the rug was taken out from under you, and you were flat on your back, with nowhere else to look but straight up at God? I would venture to say that's going to be the same for all of us here. We feel the closest to God when we are most desperate for His help. When we have nothing else to cling to, we look to Him. And that is exactly how it is supposed to be. 
And that's where David has arrived at. That God is his portion. But then again, we have to to think this through and ask, is Yahweh, is God my portion? Is he the one that I cling to desperately? Is he the one that I turn to? Is he the, the refuge that I run to? Or are there other things in this life that I turn to as a source of satisfaction or as a solution to my problems? Right? And if we, if we are doing that, if we are running to those other things, we're going to experience verse 4, the multiplication of sorrows. But David found a deep and abiding satisfaction, and that deep and abiding satisfaction was also experienced by the Apostle Paul. Listen to his words from Philippians. It says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and indeed I count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That's the satisfaction that he has even just a little bit later in Philippians, verse that's often misquoted, verses 12 and 13. Speaking of his contentment, Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God is the one who leads us to find contentment in any and every situation if he is our portion. If something else is our portion, we're not going to find that type of contentment. We're going to experience despair and isolation and the multiplication of sorrows. But a life devoted to God consists of the commitments of our heart, and then it overflows with satisfaction in our heart. And then a third and final feature that we're going to see in verses 8 through 11, what that life leads to, namely stability in our lives. Stability. If you look at those verses, verse 8, I have set the, the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David's commitments and his satisfaction lead him to the point of overall stability in life. And he describes several aspects of that here. Verse 8, he describes a perseverance in trials. It says that he has set the Lord always before me. Uh, and he is, as a result, the Lord is at his right hand to help him and to be there. And that last statement in verse 8, I will not be shaken. Right? There is a resistance to being staggered if we are devoted to God. When trials and temptations and difficulty comes, if we are devoted to God, we are like a rock. Again, Psalm 1, we are firmly planted. If we are not firmly planted and devoted to Christ, what happens when trials come? We're like a tumbleweed, blown every which way. And which one would you rather be? David points to perseverance in trials. He points to joy and worship in the first part of verse 9. He says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Uh, the Hebrew there uh, is the idea of he's my, my heart and my glory. 
Again, my entire being rejoices and, and I have this tremendous gladness as I worship Yahweh. Now that is what David experiences and it just builds from there. In the second part of verse 9 and verse 10, David has a hope in the resurrection. So he's not afraid of death because he says, the Lord's going to raise me up again. He's not going to abandon me uh, to the place of the dead. He's not going to leave me in Sheol. That's what he says in verse 9. My flesh will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul. But then that second line in verse 10, it's a very important line because David moves beyond himself in that second line of verse 10. Uh, He moves beyond himself and he begins to speak of the future Messiah. He begins to speak of Jesus. How do we know that? You're like, well, prove that. I'm like, okay, let's prove that. Uh, Let's study and see. How do we know that David is speaking beyond himself and speaking of a future Messiah who will be resurrected from the dead? Uh, They're beginning back in verse 4. There is uh, a parallelism in the Hebrew. Uh, and there is, a, a, in the first line of each verse, uh, there is an idea stated. And in the second line uh, of each verse, that idea is amplified to a certain degree. Verse 4, David won't participate in the drink offerings of those who offer uh, blood. But what is he going to do? He won't even mention their names. Verse 5, Yahweh is not only his portion and his cup, but he's the one who controls his lot, his destiny. Verse 6, not only have the boundary lines fallen in pleasant places, but they are altogether beautiful to David. And and that pattern continues. So when we get to verse 10, David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And then the next line, he's going to say something even greater. There's going to be an advancement of that first line in the second line. But additionally, there is also the breaking of another pattern. If you go back to verse 5, look at all of the me's and my's. Look at how many times David speaks about himself uh, and in his own experience, right? My portion, my cup, my inheritance. The boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Uh, All of these things. And then verse 10, what's different? It's not me, it's your Holy One. There there is a change and a transition here. And in the Hebrew, uh, your Holy One is not the the normal term for the Messiah, but it's uh, more literally your faithful one. And the root word there is the same word that is used to speak of God's covenant-keeping, steadfast, loving-kindness. The Hebrew word, uh, hesed. Uh, and God, David says, your faithful one, the one who is characterized by your steadfast, covenant-keeping, uh, loving faithfulness, uh, you, that one, who is not David, God will not allow that one to undergo corruption. Again, it's an argument from lesser to greater, uh, or, and from greater to lesser, because David has an assurance that he's not going to be abandoned to the grave, Because he knows, uh, ultimately, that God has to do something. If God will not allow his chosen people to to be left in the place of the dead, how is God going to get them out of there? Well, there's going to be someone who conquers death. Uh, There has to be someone who defeats the grave and is able to raise up God's people to be with him. That's a rich theology that we can't fully unfold now. uh, But we see this uh, just from this passage itself. But then also uh, in the New Testament, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, uh, both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul quote this psalm uh, as predicting the resurrection of Jesus. 
Uh, on the day of Pentecost, uh, as Peter was preaching in uh, the temple, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 25 uh, and following, this is what uh, the Apostle Peter says. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter quotes this exact passage that we've just been studying uh, and says this is a prediction that Christ is going to raise from the dead, that the Messiah is going to conquer the grave and death. And that is actually David's assurance that he has a future resurrection to look forward to. That gives David hope, knowing and understanding a right theology even back then. Uh, And the apostles build upon that uh, in the New Testament. So David has this hope of a future resurrection. And then additionally, verse 11, that there is a knowledge of the path of life. Because you make known to me the path of life. And what is that path of life? Being in the presence of God. God himself is that path. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Indeed, that is where every Christian should long to be. Amen? In the presence of God, at His right hand, experiencing all the the deep joy and satisfaction to be found in a relationship with Him. And as I have read many uh, Christian missionary biographies, it's amazing to see the devotion that they have and that they experience to God. And as I reflect upon what David writes here, I see that devotion to Christ uh, in the lives of those missionaries. It gives them an amazing stability, right? When missionaries go out into the mission field, they are able to persevere in trial. They are able to experience great joy in worship even when life is, is falling apart elsewhere. Uh, They are able to have no fear of death because they have an assurance of a future resurrection in Christ. They have an unwavering purpose and direction in life. They know exactly what they have been called to do, and they are willing to sacrifice their lives in pursuit of that calling, in the pursuit of the glory of God. And all of this is seen succinctly in the life of a missionary named Jim Elliott. Lived uh, in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, He was a missionary uh, to the Huarani tribe in Ecuador. You may know the story. He and four other men uh, were murdered by that tribe as they were seeking to make contact with them. They were struck down with spears and refused to fight back because they wanted to reach this people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's amazing is those five men were killed and and, uh, Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, she actually went back and ministered to that tribe. She didn't say, well, they killed my husband. I'm done with them. She went back as a missionary to those people and saw some of those men who murdered her husband and four other men. She saw them come to know Jesus. Think about that. Is that stability? Is that perseverance? Now, Jim Elliott was only 28 years old when he was killed. And after his death, there was a journal entry found that he had written several years earlier. This is what Jim Elliott had expressed, his life dedicated to serving Christ. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, 
to gain that which he cannot lose. None of us can keep our lives. Right? None of us can keep, no matter how hard we try, we will be unable to do that. And so it is wise to give away what we cannot keep in the pursuit of something that we cannot lose. God as our inheritance. That is what David experienced. That is what Jim Elliott experienced. That is what countless others have experienced. But again, how many of us have that type of stability in life and in death? If we were to honestly examine our lives, would we see the exact opposite of the stability described here? Some of us might see that we are shaken by trials that we face. We are staggered. Some of us might see that rather than having joy in worship, we are apathetic in worship. We might see that we are are very afraid of death. That we don't truly trust in the hope of that future resurrection. Others might also realize that we are ignorant of how to truly live. God has not made known to us the path of life or we are not walking in it. Now, each and every one of those experiences is an amazing study in God's Word. There are solutions to each one of those, but each one of those is also indicative of a much bigger and broader issue. What we experience, anxiety and apathy and and fear of death and lack of direction in life because ultimately we lack devotion to God. That we feel lost at sea because we are trying to go our own way rather than devoting ourselves wholeheartedly to Christ. And we experience that instability, apathy, fear, and ignorance because we are devoting ourselves to other things. Again, not devoting ourselves to Jesus doesn't mean that we're neutral. It means that we're pursuing something else. God has created us to be worshipers. It's just what are we worshiping? So here's the challenge. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flow the springs of life. As Christians, we have to be aware of what we are devoted to. And again, the most worthy thing that we can devote our lives to. Not to our career. Family is good, but it's not ultimate. The greatest thing that we can devote our lives to is God himself. One Christian author comments on this verse in, in Proverbs. It says, The Christian's high calling is to guard the heart and its loves and desires. The worst trade in the universe is playing in the shallow pools of the world's spectacles instead of diving deep for the treasure of eternal worth. Or to, to quote Jonathan Edwards again, he uses a word here I'm going to try and work into everyday life. Jonathan Edwards spoke of the knowledge of Jesus as the sweetest and most happifying thing in this life. Right? Try and use happifying today. And that's merely what David is saying here in Psalm 16. And that's what we need to be convinced of. Amen? We need to see that the life devoted to God is worthy of being lived. And as we go from here, may we strive to make commitments to devote ourselves to Christ. May we strive to experience that that 
overflowing satisfaction that will result in those commitments of a devoted life. And then may we relish and enjoy and rejoice in the stability that results from those things. From that life devoted to God, we will be stable. We will not be tossed to and fro because we are anchored to the rock, Christ himself. Amen.